Welcome yet again to Grace Community Church. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace. And I know that there are several of you who are here for the very first time. And we extend to you a special welcome. And so glad you chose to worship with us. I have a really bad cold. It started last Sunday morning. And and it's just all week long. It's been up and down. I don't know that I've ever heard of as many people having a cold this time of year as is the case. Several of you felt for Leanne. I heard her trying to get, and this, you may hear more of that this morning uh, from me as well, just trying to get through. It, since there are so many first-timers, I, I should let you know that we are in a series called A Place in the Family. Uh, family is just one of the metaphors that God uses for his people, his covenant community, Jesus' bride, which is the body of Christ, who is the church, and you get the idea. Lots of metaphors that the Lord uses for his community, covenant community of people. So that's what we're talking about. I wasn't sure how long this series would go when we started back in January, but it looks like it's going to go all the way up to mid-August when the students come back. There's just so much to talk about in regard to our church family. Today we're talking about love, which is the family glue, the ingredient that binds us together. What is it that, that, that holds your family together? A lot of different things. Well, God has designed that love be the glue that binds his church body together. We've talked about our relationship with Christ, which brings us into the family, and the foundation of our beliefs which, of course, come from Scripture and from which we get an understanding of family life and instructions on how we're to live in a world that is less and less enamored of kingdom values. Indeed, one could say that it is our commitment to truth that holds us together. We are committed to the Word. We're committed to truth. So that keeps us together. But what do you do when we're all committed to truth and we still don't get along? You know, and and we're still aggravating one another. Well, only love is going to hold us together in such times. Now, since we're talking about love, and since I'm a minister, you might think that I would be saying something like, love, true love, (laughs) is what binds us together, and it will follow you all forever. So, treasure your But I'm not nearly impressive enough to do that. Uh, And and so I'm going to resist that temptation, especially since we're talking about love that is so much greater, well, that is beyond, broader than just marriage. Speaking of marriage, Ethan Powell and Sarah Arnold, engaged, newly engaged. Did you guys, did did you pop the question in Italy? He did. Where, what town? Uh, Montevarchi. Montevarchi. Okay, Tuscany engagement. That's fairly typical for us around here. (laughs) So congratulations to Ethan and Sarah. You know, true love, as these guys are going to find out, looks a lot different from what you often see on Netflix. Although the world, made in the image of God, often gets it right. You know, sometimes... Elements, just elements, not the whole thing, but elements of the gospel are, be- are seen beautifully, subtly 
in the ways that the world's portray the world portrays love but it's it's far more than what you see there so often what you see of love is self-serving it may not look like it but if you dig just below the surface it's all about making sure that I feel like I want to feel. But love is portrayed in scripture as anything but self-serving. It is the exact opposite and in fact much deeper than most Christians assume it to be. Our text today is Colossians uh, chapter 3 verses 12 to 17. And it's our custom to stand for the reading of scripture. We don't always do that depending on how working through a text. Almost always but not always. Today it's going to be a bit of a combination. I want to work quickly through the first 11 verses of Colossians 3. And then we'll stand as verses 12 to 17 are read before I share uh, the main thoughts of the sermon. The first part of Colossians, as is so often the case in the letters that the apostles Paul and Peter and John wrote to their readers, the first part of the letter is often about who we are in Christ, everything that God has done for us. The second part of the letter then shifts to because of who we are in Christ, now this is how we're supposed to live. This is what it means to be in Christ and how it should affect our behavior, our thinking, our, our, our thought patterns, everything about us. So we're picking up this morning, we're picking up Colossians at the turning point. So keep that in mind as we begin in chapter 3 verse 1. Verse 1 says, if you have then been raised with Christ. In the Greek, this is known as a first class conditional sentence. A lot of times when you say, if this is, when you see a writer saying, if this is true. Essentially, it's saying, since this is true. Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above. Not on things on the earth. I heard one guy one time, I'm just throwing this in, <laughs> sort of extra. He said, you know, here's a way to think about doing that. If you've got, this, was, this dates me, you know, this dates this analogy. It's way back in the day. He said, if you've got one of those watches that dings every minute or every hour, if you just have it ding every hour, when you hear that ding, set your mind on things above, your heart on things above. We could do that with the text, whatever, just whenever, let something trigger your heart and mind to think about the Lord. Now, even though you don't see it written exactly like this, Paul is saying to those who are reading and hearing his letter, put both your heart and your mind on things above, not on earthly things. He's speaking of both our affections and our values, what we value to be true. The primary focus today is on love. But our definition of love is going to be confused if we're talking, taking our cues from the world and not from Scripture. So the Lord says, first of all, since you were raised in Christ, then set your affections on things that are above. For you have died and your life is hidden, verse 3, with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. How does it feel when your values are in direct contradiction with the world's values? Increasingly, it leaves us feeling 
exposed. Remember, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And one day, when Jesus returns, your values are going to be seen to have been the right values all along. There's so much more I'm going to say about this later. I really had to resist the temptation to say it today and to put it later. When we talk about kingdom values right at the very end of this series. About how our values are upside down from the world's. But know this. It may seem like the world may call you a fool. The world may say you're a bigot. You're a hater. One day your life is hidden with Christ You may feel exposed, but your life is hidden with Christ. And one day, all is going to be revealed. Put to death, verse 5, because of our values, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. And then he gives another list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Have you ever noticed how much of the New Testament says to the believer in so many words, quit acting like an unbeliever. Live like you belong to Jesus. You're living like an unbeliever and the wrath of God is going to come on people who live this way. You're not like that anymore. You used to be, but you're not. Paul's commands are based on careful theological construction. That's why he always talks about who we are in Christ. And then he says, now, on the basis of that, this is how you are to live. Colossians 3 tracks very closely with Romans 6. Christ died, we died. The picture is in baptism. We died. Christ rose, we rose. And our union with Christ makes godliness a reality in regard to our position in Christ. We are godly. You may think, oh, not me. God looks at you. He sees Jesus. You're godly. But it also makes it a distinct possibility with regard to our behavior. In order for a holy life to become reality in the here and now, we're going to have to choose to put to death the earthly impulses that spring up in us. And that covers a lot of ground. Paul continues his list in verse 9 and then he shifts to the positive side of the union with Christ. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. It's just like you put off old clothes and you put on new clothes. It's that intentional. You're making a decision and you're following through with what you're doing. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, we are one big family in Christ, even though we come from many different backgrounds and life experiences. Notice I didn't say we're one big happy family, although we're supposed to be. 
Unfortunately, my solution for us becoming a big, happy family is often somehow to get you to see things the way that I see them and indulge my interest. God's design, as I must constantly remind myself, is for me to, well, to be reminded by his word, is for me to love and serve others, not the other way around. Love is the family glue that binds us together. Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. It's time to read the remainder of our text, so if you would please stand as the scripture is read. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. You heard about that compassion in the prayer time. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ Rule in hearts to which you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We've been doing that today. And we've been teaching one another. I, sometimes I wish we, could, wish we could do the sermon first and then the word, sing the songs. You cannot believe how often it goes together and it reinforces the teaching of Scripture. So, admonish, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Well, Lord, um, we hear these words and we expect these words. Embracing, obeying, those are different thoughts altogether. And I pray that as your word comes alive, in our hearts today by the Holy Spirit that we might be responsive again by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Do for and through us that which we are incapable of doing ourselves. Encourage our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks and be seated. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Love within the body of Christ is often hailed as the greatest virtue. Often in scripture. So now, abideth these three. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Um, But what is love? I mean, everybody has a definition, right? A lot of times we, we get our definitions from something that someone says at a particular time in our our lives and it just resonates with us and we hang on to that and remember it. The Apostle Paul considered love to be a summary of all the teaching of Scripture as far as what we are to do. Above all, 
put on love. Fruit of the Spirit, a lot of scholars think that the fruit of the Spirit is love. And from love come joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, and all the others. Love is the highest virtue. Jesus said the same thing in a different way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The second commandment is like to the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. Surely love, though, is, is more, and, and, and surely love then, I could say, is more than some sentimental emotion that considers anything and everything acceptable. Right? Well, let's think about love for a bit, and let's think about love through what God says, or by what God says in his word, and then we'll summarize with the three points the first of which is love is a choice. I've already noted that Colossians 3 is tightly connected to Romans 6 theologically. Our position in Christ, is it something that we have achieved? Or is it something that was given to us, actually declared to be so by God? Without question, our position in Christ is because of what Jesus has done for us, and it is according to God's decision. He decided that we would be placed in Christ. We can never be good enough to be in Christ, to work our way in Christ, into Christ. Salvation is of the Lord. So what about sanctification? I mean, does Jesus live through us, or do we decide to live for him? That's a bit of a trick question, but when you think it through, it's not really all that complicated. I mean, how is one saved? Through repentance and faith in what Jesus has done for us on the cross as a substitute for our sins. God causes that to happen, but as far as you and I are concerned, we recognize that God has called a person into his family when we see that person repent of sins and call out to Jesus to be saved. Even so, salvation is of the Lord. And so is sanctification. If God doesn't live through me, I'm not going to render meaningful service to the Lord. And at the same time, I am called to obey God's commands. Colossians 3, we're told to have put off, we are said that we have put off the old and have put on the new. Colossians 1.29 possibly describes this process as well as any place in Scripture. Though it really doesn't tell us what happens. Paul, when he was talking about this ministry that God has given him, says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he so powerfully works within me. This is the tension between the position that we have in Christ and the practice of the believer. The Christian is a new person, but he or she has to intentionally put on the acts of the new person. As Dallas Willard says, grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. It's a big difference in the way that we think about things. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to an attempt to earn God's favor. So all of this is to say that love is a choice. Look at verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, meekness, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Notice the order in which Paul articulates position, responsibility. He doesn't say do these things so that we can become holy, but rather because we have been made holy, we are to put on all of these different traits. But make no mistake, it is a choice that we make to put on compassionate hearts. So compassion, would that be your first description of most Christians that you know? Compassionate? What about your fellow believers, your fellow brothers and sisters here at Grace Community? Would you consider most of the people here compassionate? I would. Make no mistake though, it is because people have intentionally chosen to put on these hearts of compassion. And by the way, it's much easier to put on compassionate hearts when things are going well as opposed to when things are going badly. You know, it's interesting just the way the Lord has worked in our nation through the years. Often revival has come before a major war, before the Revolutionary War, before uh, the Civil War. But then, during the war, people fell away from the Lord. At the very time you would think they would be coming to the Lord, they're fallen away. They've fallen away. And so, if things are going nicely, it's easy to be compassionate. But when it gets tough, sometimes it's not as easy. Easy. It's not natural to be compassionate to others, especially when you're suffering. It's natural to act in one's self-interest. So, Can a family survive without compassionate hearts? Absolutely. But there's no way a family is going to thrive without us sharing compassionate hearts one with another. We all need compassion from others and they need it from us. Last week, our church unanimously passed an amendment to our church constitution affirming that we believe the biblical definition of marriage is that marriage is between one man and one woman. I'm grateful that we're willing to stand for scripture regardless of whether we are in step, whether scripture is in step or whether we are in step with the culture or at odds with the culture. Whether we affirm such a statement or not, The world increasingly sees those who have biblically based positions on morality as haters. This is nothing new though. It's always been this way. Historically, Christians have been considered opponents of culture and believers in our nation are long overdue for our dose of people thinking that way about us. But here's my challenge. Even though we stand where we do. May it never be accurately stated about us that we hate anybody. If we believe truth, it's not because we're smart enough to believe it or because, bless God, I'm better than you are. By the way, I heard that a lot when I was younger from preachers, bless God. That's why I say it sometimes. I ought not to say it, but... And I'm saying it in jest because it's just so absurd when people talk, when they tie their own 
decisions or their positions with God when all it is is just being prideful about what I believe. The world is going to call us those who hate people, but we absolutely do not have to live down to the caricature that others have created for us. Take your cues about how to respond to the world from Scripture, not from Fox News, which I watch a lot, by the way. If it were not for grace, none of us would be saved. If it were not for God's compassion on you, you would have no hope of heaven. He calls us to be compassionate. Primarily toward one another, but oh my goodness, this is to overflow to everybody. This is the specific interpretation that we treat one another, but the application keeps on extending to the world. It follows right up with Jesus when he said, if your brother, not your brother, he said, if someone smites you on the cheek, turn the other cheek to him. If they strike you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. I'm convinced Jesus is talking about our enemies, not our brothers and sisters. We would have to deal with that. But there's a lot that we want to deal with about our brothers and sisters that ought to be just forgiven. In addition to compassionate hearts, we're to treat one another with kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Think about the problems you have with with family members, blood relatives. Think about the problems you have with believers, whether they're in the body or outside the body. Think about how many of those problems wouldn't be problems if you put on compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I was challenged on these things yesterday, you know, as is always the case. I would just love for you to be able to preach for a week and just see how God applies the scripture to your life before you get up here. It is amazing how much you're called to obey even as you're teaching. Even though Paul doesn't address a specific problem or members uh, 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 or address specific members who aren't getting along, that may have been the case. But you know what? It's interesting. Whether his words were addressed like he did in Philippians to Yodia and Syntyche, where he said, these two women, please get along. It's, it's hurting the body, the fact that you're not getting along. Maybe there was a case going on like that at Colossae. Maybe not. Either way, it's interesting, is it not, that he doesn't address the one who, has, who is doing the wrong, but he says that the, uh, those of us who are mature have to put up with the immature behavior, which is a perfect segue to the next point. Love cannot be sustained apart from a readiness to forgive. You remember when you met the love of your life. Even though you knew better, it felt as if that it would always be perfect harmony between the two of you. Ethan and Sarah, that's what you got going on now. In time, it became evident that your partner 
was not perfect. And with even more time, it became evident that your partner was far from perfect. Of course, your partner was simultaneously discovering the same thing about you. If you are unwilling to forgive, love will not be sustained in your relationship. If you cannot forgive, give it up. In verses 13 to 14, the Lord is telling us to let someone know when he or she has done something to aggravate us, someone who has wronged us, to set them straight and say, this is how... No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, bear the burden. Bear with one another, put up with one another, forgive one another. And then this clincher, in the same way that Jesus has forgiven you. By the way, just a reminder, almost any time you see God in the New Testament, it's referring to the Father. And when you see the Lord, it's referring to Jesus. Jesus has forgiven you. There's some overlap, just like the Trinity, there's overlap. Three persons, one essence. But in the same way that the Lord has forgiven you, Forgive others. Colossians 2, 13 to 14 is a beautiful description of the price that Jesus paid so that our sins might be forgiven. He took the list of debts that were against us, that was against us, this list of, 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 of money that we owed or even crimes that we had committed and they were written against us and he nailed them to the cross. See that list of sins that was against us? That record of debt in ancient times when they would write this out, you owe this, this, and this. When that debt had been satisfied, they would write across the the list, tetelestai, or paid in full. Tetelestai also is the word that the gospel writers use, the Greek word, When Jesus said, it is finished, Jesus may as well have been saying, or he was saying in essence, paid in full. As David told us about this morning, the the atonement was completed, paid in full. Your debt has been paid. Forgiveness is always costly. When you forgive someone, You bear the pain of his or her sin against you. You also free your heart and mind from bitterness. A couple of things that we need to keep in perspective (coughs) about Jesus' forgiveness. When Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. He was praying for God's mercy more than he was for God's grace. Mercy is a gift. I mean, it's a withholding of judgment that is due. Grace is an undeserved gift. He wasn't saying, Father, give them grace, save them. He was literally saying, let be. Don't judge them. Hold back your judgment. They don't understand what they're doing. At the very least, the centurion overseeing the crucifixion came to faith that day. 
But Jesus, up to this point, had put up with at least three years of his disciples bickering and arguing. And from time to time, he called them out for their attitudes and their behaviors. And he also called for church discipline when people were unrepentant from major sins. But for the most time, for the most part, Jesus just overlooked things. And he's called us to do the same. Overlook the little things that people do that are so aggravating. Jesus trusted his life to the Father. The judge of all the earth who would always do right. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes it's easier to forgive the big stuff than it is the little stuff. I mean, when someone has sinned grievously against us, then we have no option but to forgive. It's not going to be worked out. The little stuff, we can tell people, you know, this was not good what you did to me. And you just need to, here's what scripture says about that. You need, you, 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 and the Lord is saying, no, no, it's all about me forgiving others. Most of the sins that we're called to forgive in Colossians 3 don't rise to the level where the church needs to take action. Most of them are just the small things. Someone interrupted you. You wanted to do one thing. Somebody else carried the day because their ideas were not necessarily better. But you know how that person is. And we all just have to. And I'm tired of that. And How do you judge between major sins and personal wrongs that should be overlooked? Because again... God didn't say to the one who is doing the wrong. He said to the one who is offended. Just get over it. Forgive. I'm not entirely sure how to answer that question. How do you judge between the big stuff and the... You know, the Catholic Church talks about mortal and venial sins. We all have levels of... We have degrees of, 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 of pain that is caused by sin. And we all have degrees of what we think are the worst sins and... Your list might not be the same as my list. Scripture tells us certain things need to be addressed church-wide. Most of them have to do with unrepentant sin. Sexual sins, um, false doctrine has to be eliminated. Someone who is creating division in the body. Even laziness is addressed as a sin to bring before the body for um, church discipline, but that's only after a process has been followed. And that kind of laziness that 2 Thessalonians 3 talks about was the kind that said, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to let the Lord take care of me, which means you're going to take care of me. Because if you don't take care of me, I'm going under and I know you're not going to do that to a poor brother or sister in Christ. There are times when we need to just call people, get up and get going. And, and if it's unrepentant sin, then the Lord says, deal with it through the process, which may ultimately result in church discipline. We're going to address church discipline in the series because it's such an important aspect of family, of community life. For now, though, I want to share how you can forgive someone who has hurt you. Instead of praying, Lord, as God calls us to do, bless those who persecute you and Sometimes that feels like it in the church. It's never the same way, but that's the 
best that we can do since none of us have been put in jail for our faith in Christ, not yet anyway. And since none of us have, have, have suffered, well, some of you probably have suffered loss at your jobs and that type of thing. But oftentimes, we, our biggest struggles are with other believers or other family members. Instead of praying, Lord, bless this person and help him to see how he's done me wrong. Pray something like, Lord, bless her physically, spiritually, emotionally, financially. Bless her social life. And in her mistreatment of me, please be merciful. Just as I would want you to be merciful to me if I were the one guilty of doing these awful things. It's just like Jesus, isn't it? Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. That kind of prayer will change your life. And it will allow peace to rule in the body. Love cannot be sustained when you are unwilling to forgive. Any more than you can be rightly related to God apart from his forgiveness of you. So the last thought about love. The love that is described here can only occur in community. If you are listening to a podcast of this message because you were unable to be at church today, good for you. You're staying connected with the body. If you are listening to a podcast of this message because you had something else you wanted to do, and you realize, oh, I can just catch it later, then you're missing the point, and you are disconnecting from the body. If Christians were being actively persecuted, community life would be much more important to us than it is. And again, who knows? It could come to that. Almost all Christian leaders are beginning to think That day is coming for us, and a lot of these guys are not alarmist. In some ways, it would make gathering together a more important priority for most of us anyway. It would sharpen the focus of our entire lives in significant ways. Don't hope for persecution, but if it comes, know that God will sustain us. I want to close this morning reading the last two verses of our text let the word of Christ dwell in you richly the word about Christ is essentially what is being said here let this word about Jesus and his forgiveness especially dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You can't do that on your own. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whenever you see the word you in this text, it is plural, um, Let the word of Christ dwell in your midst richly as you teach and admonish one another on Facebook and Snapchat. And again, no. Colossians 3 is talking about family life being enjoyed together. What a great prayer, Jeffrey, 
ask for this morning a request. Jeffrey and Jen, we've got two more weeks here. We're going to miss them. I rarely say goodbye to folks because, as Ricky said, we have so many students and our whole area is just transient. We, we have people, military, we've got jobs coming and going from the from Research Triangle, even though we're, you know, on the good spot of living out here. And, and so people come and go. And we don't always say goodbye, but that is, I can't tell you how many times I hear people say, oh, I just want to find a church, a body, a community like this community. Pray for Jeffrey and Jen and let that remind you to pray for all the people that God brings into our midst and blesses us with for a while and then they have to move on. So Colossians 3 is talking about family life being enjoyed in family gatherings, acknowledging Jesus as the head of our church, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And the third time in three verses, we're told to be thankful. It was one of the things I was challenged with yesterday. Had to wait an hour at a business for something that should have been done in me and could have been done. And, of course, I'm an American. Come on! I, I, I can't stand to wait five minutes for fast food. Which is neither, by the way, oftentimes. A grateful heart and spirit would go a long way toward helping us to be patient. Well, I'll just go ahead and tell you, I I should have been thankful. We were waiting after Liz and Sarah had successfully done a skydiving jump, you know. I should have been saying, thank you, Lord, they're alive, you know, they're alive. And I'm saying, come on, sign the paper, for goodness sakes. The guy had to sign Sarah's paper. Took, he did two more jumps before he signed the paper. Scripture hits us at that level. But you know what? Oftentimes, we don't let it hit us at that level because we're dealing with the big stuff, but it's the little stuff that most of Scripture talks about the New Testament. It's getting along, being patient, first with one another, and then with everyone. Well, next week, if Jesse is not in surgery, David is going to be preaching about our theology and worship, music, teaching through music, the part that it plays in family life. So, by the way, be praying for these guys this week. Jesse goes for his post-op slash pre-op, all kinds of ops there. He's going to have to have surgery, and if things go well, it'll be sooner rather than later. So maybe um, a different plan, but right now the plan is for David to share that with us next week. Let's pray. Forgiving believers who have hurt you may be one of the most difficult responsibilities we have as followers of Jesus. 
Somehow it just seems easier to forgive unbelievers than it is to forgive those who should know better than to be so proud or to use such hurtful language or to do such mean things. Who has hurt you that you need to forgive? You have opportunity, you have a responsibility really to choose to be like Jesus, but it can only happen as he lives and loves and forgives through you. So trust him. Ask him this morning to help you to do through you what you are incapable of doing. I can't, there's no way I'm forgiving that person. The Lord's calling you this morning, forgive. Place your entire life in his hands. Lord, um, we confess that we like life to be a certain way. And we, um, we demand that it be a certain way. And when people not only don't see it our way, but they cross us, uh, it's easy to be impatient. And to seek compassion for ourselves from others about how we've been done so badly. Lord, help us to put on. Because of who we are in Jesus, help us to put on that beautiful clothing of compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and patience. And above all, to put on love which binds everything together. May the love of Jesus flow through us in his name. Amen.